Good afternoon and welcome to Smolten Fields and welcome to this week's Great Sacred Music. Today we're exploring Handel's much-loved oratorio the Messiah, how it came to be written and how it tells the story of Christ's birth, death and resurrection in a way that so inspired audiences and performers for centuries. Handel was born in the German town of Halle in 1685. He initially studied law but attained his greatest heights of professional success whilst living and working as a musician here in London. He became a British subject in 1726, the same year that this building, Spartan the Field, was completed. His citizenship was more than just legal status. He composed in close collaboration with many London churches, including the Chapel Royal, and wrote on commission for British aristocracy and royalty. So his compositions have a significant place in British musical identity. When Handel died in 1759, having lived in England for nearly 50 years, he was a respected and rich man. His funeral was given full state honours, and he was buried in Westminster Abbey, just up the road. Back in the 1730s, though, much of Handel's success rested on his mastery of Italian opera, but public interest in the genre had been declining. The British public were craving something new, contrasting to the pretensions of Italian opera. Inspired by the popular success of John Gay's English language The Beggar's Opera in 1728, Handel too began to explore the English language in an oratorio format and had early success with Soul in 1735, setting the text of the British Charles Jennings. In July 1741, Jennings was keen to collaborate again and wrote, Handel says he will do nothing next winter, but I hope I shall persuade him to set another scripture collection I have made for him and perform it for his own benefit impassionately. I hope he will lay out his own genius and skill upon it, that the composition may excel all his former compositions, as the subject excels every other subject. The subject is Messiah. Handel wrote the Messiah in a matter of weeks in September 1741. It premiered to a large and appreciative audience in Dublin on April 13, 1742 as part of a major Handel concert series. 
By this time, Handel was thoroughly convinced by the dramatic and edifying power of the oratorio form to convey God's words to large audiences. When a friend approached him after the premiere to congratulate him on such a beautiful piece of entertainment, Handel was indignant. Entertainment, he reportedly exclaimed. That was not written for entertainment, it was written for education. So it's our tradition of great of music to join together in singing a hymn, and today we start with Rejoice the Lord is King by Charles Wesley. Wesley was a contemporary of Handel's, and the tune Doxel was composed by Handel specifically for this text. So we stay seated, St. Martin's voice is immediately in singing Rejoice the Lord is King, and you'll find the words on the inside of your sheet. In Messiah, 
Handel and Jennings dramatise Christ's nativity, passion, resurrection, and ascension. Messiah is a Hebrew word meaning the anointing of God, and it's significant that, the name, that this is the name chosen for their oratorio. Most oratorios are named for Homer's heroes, Saul, Solomon, Esther, Joshua. But today we're not listening to the oratorio Jesus. In fact, Jesus is only named once in the whole libretto as Lord Jesus Christ, and there are no other New Testament personal names mentioned at all. This raises the subject matter beyond the nitty-gritty of human affairs to the universal and eternal. Jennings' intention was not to dramatise the life and teachings of Jesus Christ, but to chronicle the broader context of the Messiah as the saviour of humankind. The text is from the King James Version of the Bible and from the Psalms, including the 1662 Book of Common Prayer. It uses very little first-person narrative or quoted speech. Unlike most of Handel's other oratorios, the soloists and chorus do not assume dramatic parts or characters, but share the role of the narrator. Messiah is structured in three parts. Three, of course, is important in Christian symbolism, representing the Trinity, but also significant in history and theory of theatre. The tradition of dividing a drama into three acts dates back to Aristotle, who advocated that the play should imitate a single whole action, a whole what has a beginning, a middle, and an end. Jennings wrote subtitles for each of the three parts of Messiah. The first one, the prophecy and realisation of God's plan to redeem by the coming of Messiah. The second, the redemption and sacrifice of Christ. And the third, the hymn of thanksgiving for the final overthrow of death. So we're now going to hear a short section from part one. It dramatises the great expectancy of Israel for the promised Messiah. The prophecies of the Old Testament foretell his coming and the work he will accomplish. He will comfort Jerusalem, cause warfare to cease, subdue its enemies, and emerge as the head of his fine government that will rule all nations. When the good news is eventually delivered, it's the humble shepherds tending their flocks on the hillside of Judea. Handel conveys this using the voice of the soprano soloist and adorned in speech-like restorative style. The host of angels rejoice, and the news spreads through humankind.
And now a selection of pieces from part two of the Messiah, which covers Christ's passion and death. After Jesus' birth, meek and lowly as the Lamb of God, he experienced all of humanity's vulnerability. He was rejected by the very people he came to save, despised, mocked, and physically punished. But again, Jennings' libretto does not focus on the narrative details of the passion, but on the theological context. Unlike Bach's and John's Matthew Passions, which are based on all the evocative detail of the Gospels, providing about the events culminating in Jesus' crucifixion, what Messiah does is skip straight to the consequences. In fact, the very words describing the death of Christ in Messiah are not taken from the Gospels, but paraphrased from the prophecies of Isaiah. He was cut off out of the land of the living, for the transgressions of my people was his strength.
The last movement we heard there, since my man came in death, is from the start of part three of Messiah. Here the theme is the promise of redemption and foretelling the final day of judgment and general resurrection. The final lines of Genesis Libretto are taken from Revelation and summarise the glorious joy of the Messiah. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honour and glory and blessing. Blessing and honour and glory and power be unto him that sitteth on the throne, and unto the Lamb, for ever and ever. In our second hymn today, we sing Christ's resurrection to a tune taken from another of Handel's oratorios, Judas Maccabeus. The original lyrics were See the Conquering Hero Comes, referring to Maccabeus' triumph in forming an alliance with Rome to defend the Jewish religion and Judea from persecution in 160 BC. The composer Beethoven was very taken with this melody and composed 12 variations on it for piano and cello in 1796. Again, let's remain seated as the voices stand and lead, Thine be the glory.
thanks for joining us for today's Great Circle Music. You'll find details of future Great Circle Music on the back of your sheet uh, every Thursday at 1 o'clock and streamed a day later every Friday at 1 o'clock uh, on Samaritan's digital and Samaritan's Facebook page. As you leave today, there will be the opportunity to contribute to a retirement collection either in cash at the back, where you'll also find on the sheet other ways of giving St Martin's uh, through QR codes and text message giving. It really helps us, um, your donations really help us as we uh, rebuild the music programme after the pandemic. But first, and to finish today's great city music, let's hear the most famous chorus of all from Messiah, the Hallelujah Chorus. This has become such a well-known musical hit that it seems embedded in popular consciousness and appears in adverts and films and all sorts of moments of joy and celebration. Indeed, while researching this, I also discovered there's a website, www.hallelujahchorus.com, to do take a look this afternoon. It's a domain de dedicated simply to the lyrics and the music of this much-loved chorus. In many parts of the world, it's traditional for the audience to stand during the Hallelujah Chorus. Legend has it that King George II was so moved by the music that he stood up to his feet when he heard it and required all his subjects to follow suit. There's some doubt of the accuracy of this legend, but it's a good story and actually somewhat ironic. This is because Hallelujah's original context in Messiah is a particularly bloody and violent moment at the end of part two. The tenor soldiers sings of God's domination over earthly kings and tyrants. He will break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel, at which the chorus breaks out in triumphant joy. King George II may not have recognised the forceful undertones of the phrase, King of Kings and Lord of Lords, but we can all fall under the rousing spell of this much longitude. Thanks for joining us.